This this is the Impressions Exchange Podcast. Impressions Exchange Podcast. Where all topics impacting the graphic imaging and printing industry are addressed via in-depth news coverage, analysis, and timely interviews. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Impressions Exchange Podcast. June marked a very special month for printing impressions. It was the 65th year since Printing Impressions launched as a national tabloid newspaper in 1958. Our publication's roots go back to our founder, Irvin J. Borowski. Not surprisingly, a lot has changed over the past 65 years, not only for Printing Impressions, but within the printing industry as a whole. That's why on this episode, I am pleased to hand over the reins to my colleague and editor-in-chief of Printing Impressions, Mark Michelson who took some time to speak with our former colleague at Napco Media and Printing United Alliance, an absolute industry legend, Pat Henry. Mark, who entered the industry as an editor in 1982, speaks with Pat about his experience in the industry when he joined in 1985. They discuss convergence within the industry at large, consolidation, digital versus offset technology, the evolution of desktop publishing, the legacy of the industry, and what we must do in order to bring in the next generation. This episode is a total blast from the past and a must listen for anyone who has been in the industry a few years or those who are brand new and want a little history lesson. Hi, I'm uh, Mark Michelson, Editor-in-Chief of Printing Impressions, and it's my real pleasure to have with me today Pat Henry, who is a fellow uh, longtime industry stalwart. Uh, Welcome, Pat. Mark, it's a pleasure to be a stalwart with you. Same here. Um, let's start out a little bit. You know, I think we came into the industry about the same time. Um, mm-hmm. When did when did you actually join the graphic arts? Uh, the year would have been uh, 1985 when I came on board as uh, an associate editor for a publication called Printing News uh, that some people uh, will, will remember from back when. It was a regional publication and... Uh, from uh, 1985 to the present day, my uh, focus has been exclusively on the uh, print and graphic communications industry and, you know, in one editorial role or another. Right. Well, Printing News, I know, really covered the, the New York metropolitan market, and it was uh, owned by, and I may be mispronouncing their last name, uh, Leo, and I'm forgetting the wife's name, jo- Joachim. Was uh, Leo he, and Florence Joachim? Yeah, that's uh, that's Joachim. right. Was was he uh, deceased when you started there? Or was he still active? Uh, he was uh, he was semi active. Leo had uh, founded that publication in 1929, so it was wow. uh, uh, it was a long standing uh, publication when when I got there. And uh, Mr. Joachim, I think, uh, had another uh, year or two before he passed, and uh, Florence continued to. Uh, edit and uh, publish it and uh, it was uh, sold to a, a friend of uh, leo's the uh, publication of uh, the publisher i should say of uh, playbill the theatrical publication that still exists and it went through another ownership change after that but uh, i was uh, i was with it oh i would say probably in one way or another uh, through about 1995 the chronology gets a little bit uh, Hazy. Uh, I went to the uh, publishing company that acquired it, and it was bundled into uh, a network of uh, regional and specialized graphic arts publications. Uh, and uh, I continued with it until uh, 2002, when I, you know, became a 
an independent, a freelance, a consultant, you know, a hired gunslinger, whatever, however you'd like to describe it. But uh, uh, since then, uh, my focus has, uh, as I said, always been on on print and graphic communications. I've been in other industries, but uh, this is uh, my professional home. Right. Well, I know you also were director of communications at NAPL at one time, and you um, you know work for What They Think, and you work for uh, for Napco Media uh, before you decided to go into uh, summer retirement. Well, uh, thanks for mentioning uh, NAPL and uh, NAPL or, or the vestiges of it are part of what we now know as uh, as Printing United and uh, uh, the uh, trade association uh, aspect of the industry, along with its trade publishing aspect, has undergone a lot of what the industry itself has undergone. That, that of course, is consolidation. So uh, I suppose no surprises there. And uh as uh, as a, as an independent, uh, I have uh, written uh, for or edited for, I would say, uh, most of the you know major trade journals in the industry. Uh, some of which I should say, most of which are not here anymore. But uh, uh, it's been my privilege to uh, you know work for all of them, and uh, you know right. not least of all uh, the NAPCO publications, which, as you know, I uh, had the opportunity to serve full time from was 2017, I guess, through 2021. So uh, that took me into retirement. But as I hope people don't get uh, tired of hearing me say, uh, it's a semi-retirement. But on some days, the semi is a lot bigger than the retired. Right. Right. So, <laughs> and uh, yep. there it is. There it is in a nutshell. But uh, Mark, I think you mentioned that uh, my timeline is pretty parallel to yours. Uh, what, what's your uh, What's your chronology? Well, I uh, joined NAPCO um, in 1982. Mm. Uh, I got hired on uh, Package Printing Magazine, which is now called Packaging Impressions. Right. But I got hired there as, assist, as an assistant editor. And back at that time, the um, assistant editors were also the ad production managers. So I had to track <sighs> down the films for the ads. For wow. The- and keep okay. track of that in, in and um so that gave me kind of a a different perspective to that side of the business and then i um moved over and i was made editor of uh two publications one was called worldwide printer which was distributed mm-hmm. outside the us and our main correspondent was a gentleman named pincus jaspert oh, uh, yeah. which is a name from the past yeah. and um and that published on an every other month cycle with another magazine we had called El Arte Tipografico, which was in Spanish. And I was the editor of that publication, and I don't know Spanish. So <laughs> I had to uh, prepare the content for a given issue, send it out to a, um, and get it translated, and then get it typeset. And then the galleys, I literally had to proofread letter for letter because I didn't know the language. So God knows what um, kind of uh, grammatical errors or, <laughs> you know, things. Uh, but El Arte Typographical is a very old publication, uh, which competed with Artist Graphicus. Um, and then I moved over um, to become editor of Package Printing um, and did that for a couple of years. And then uh, in 1985, I um, took over as editor of Printing Impressions. One thing I found fascinating was that we were covering the printing industry, but we were also living the developments in the industry, you know, as it was happening. I mean, we both were, you know, 
doing reprotype, making up mechanical yeah. boards and, um, you know, waxing machines. I remember coming home, I would have uh, type stuck to the bottom of my shoe and on my elbows. <laughs> <laughs> and we had an art department, you know, with people standing there at the art art table with the T-square and X-Acto knives and, um, you know, and just- Mark, you, you, you make a great point about- uh, you know, evolving with the technology because we had to use that technology. Uh, I, there's no surer way to date yourself than to talk about, you know, mechanical paste up and uh, <clears throat> watching film strippers do what they do. But uh, think about uh, what happened when you worked on your first uh, word processor, uh, as opposed to uh, what you used to do, which was having someone else set the type for you, format it the way you wanted. And, uh, you know, leaving it to you to work out the, the fine points. I still can't, I still can't, I, I do believe it, but it's, I almost have to shake my, pinch myself a little to imagine what it would be like to proofread copying in a language I didn't know. But uh, my, my, yeah, that my, was, my head is, uh, my head is off to you. That was, um, that was a challenge. Um, but I, I, re I remember working with a typesetter in lower Manhattan for, uh, for printing news and, uh, Business still exists in a very different form, but its specialty was uh, converting all of the various uh, typographical and imaging formats that existed before we had PostScript. And I think at one point, uh, this uh, firm advertised that they were able to uh, translate seven or eight hundred of them. And, uh, you know, that was a that was a tower of, of Babel that went away almost overnight when uh we learned, uh, you know, how to make, uh, you know, machines talk to other machines. And I shouldn't say we, because I wasn't, I had no part in the development of that technology, but as you did, you know, we had to learn to use it pretty quickly. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's one thing that's, uh, you know, kept us engaged. And you mentioned it before, just, you know, the change, the pace of change is just so relentless. And it's, you know, to me, it's, it's fascinating. And uh, that's what, uh, that's what keeps me hanging in, even in, uh, you know, even in semi-retirement. Right, right. Well, when I started in 82, uh, the typesetter we used was still using hot metal, believe it or not. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was even yeah. outdated at that point. The company went yeah. out of business um, mainly because their uh, their operators were retiring. And they couldn't get repart the replacement parts for broken down machines. Yeah. Um, and then we switched to another typesetter. Um, but I still remember when we used an outside typesetter called Another Way. And when they they came in and they showed us some type wrapped around like a photo and yeah. I remember being there mm -hmm. with some other editors and we were just like looking at it in awe like yeah. oh god you could like wrap type around a photo you know uh -huh. <laughs> I, I took a uh, I, years ago many many years ago I took a course in uh, Quark Express and uh, the instructor had a story similar to that when he said when he first came to that application and when he saw that Quark could do an automatic type run around around an image he said it was then i knew that the world was changing uh, because prior to that that would have been a pain painstaking manual process and you probably remember using an exacto knife to cut up lines of type to uh, either to fix widows or orphans or, right. or or to wrap type around so uh you know, it, it seems it seems like a small thing now but it was uh, you know it was revolutionary then right well, you know, Quark Express was, I think, introduced in 1987. So, uh, mm. you know, we've certainly come a long way. They, they 
as a company, I think they kind of lost their way and Adobe InDesign kind of took them over. Yeah, that's right. At one point, Quark Express was the kind of the de facto standard. Right. Um, so as we as we kind of grew up with the industry, so to speak, in the 80s mm -hmm. and 90s, um, I think it was fascinating to me. Well, first of all, I think those were some real heyday decades for the industry. Um, you know, I think uh, the print industry was the fourth largest manufacturing industry. Mm -hmm. um, you know, many of those years, everybody was making money. Sure. Um, no expense spared. I remember going to print shows that yeah. Built the entire McCormick Place complex. Oh gosh, you're the old uh, you know, graph expos, right? And um, so we, you know, we we're able to live those mm -hmm. those uh, go go years, which um, you know was was also a very exciting time. Um, but you know, we we talk a little bit about the um, you know the change in page production, um, and you know. Then desktop publishing came along and yeah. we saw that really wipe out an entire industry in the typesetting industry. I, I hate to compare it to, uh, you know, what happened during the, uh, you know, the medieval bubonic plagues, uh, but it was it was almost as swift and it was almost as thorough. I was uh, with uh, Printing News in a New York City based publication uh, uh, at the outset of um uh, you know, the desktop publishing transition. And uh, I would say that within five years and five years is probably uh, pro is probably generous. Uh, most of the trade typographers uh, in New York City were either gone or it had to find other things to do simply because there was not enough typesetting work anymore. And, you know, there was a fewer initially, you probably remember, well, well, it comes from a desktop and it's not 300 DPI. It can't be real type, but uh, uh, the market had other ideas. And, uh, you know, that's not the only example of the market making a decision about a technology, uh, you know, rather than the end users. Uh, and uh, it was a shock that a lot of people didn't recover from, but uh, that other people uh, took a lesson from. And uh, the printers that are still with us today, the ones that we can remember, you know, back from the years you, you described, rightly described as a heyday, are the ones who've adapted and, uh, you know, who've never, you know, clung to technology just because it was what they were comfortable with or because it was what they were, you know, they had fully paid for. And, you know, pre-press service bureaus was another oh, God, yeah. industry that kind yeah. of uh, mm -hmm. you know, went away as, uh, as yeah. uh, you know, printers were beefing up their own electronic uh, pre-press operations. And sure, you know, I remember sending out, we could color separations and mm -hmm. specialized in that. And even yeah, we'd have the our covers done and we would have them produced by... Um, these pre-press houses that were charging us, you know, they had these SEPS systems, if you remember well, the computer electronic pre-press systems, systems yeah. That, that now could be yeah. done with a right. inexpensive computer. And, you know, they were charging us thousand, fifteen hundred dollars to 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 do a cover, which, you know, back yeah. at that time was a lot of money. Uh, to anyone who, uh, listening to this podcast who's uh, baffled by these references to desktop publishing and SEPs and so forth, uh, would recommend a visit to Frank Romano's uh, Museum of Printing. And uh, 
I've forgotten the name of the town in Massachusetts. It's not far out of Boston. So if you're ever up in that Haverhill, way, Massachusetts, yeah, that's right. Actually, yeah. there, uh, yeah, fairly recently, and it's quite an impressive uh, place. And uh, to me, though, the you know the the biggest treasure there is Frank Romano himself. And oh yeah, living living treasure, no doubt about that. It, but it's yeah, I highly recommend that, that people go there and visit because it really is just like a time capsule. Yeah, the developments in the industry, um, but we've you know we've seen other changes. I think it was in um, 1990 that Xerox launched the DocuTech. Oh yes, um, oh. and I always viewed Frank Steinberg yeah. of Xerox mm -hmm. as sort of the father of the DocuTech. Yeah, um, and then in 1993 at the IPEC show, um, mm -hmm. Indigo showed the e print. 1000 and okay. Agfa had the uh DCP1 Chroma Press. Oh, and, that's right. And that really do you, do you remember a device called the Electro Press? I think that preceded both of those. I think it did only three colors, two colors plus black. Can't remember the manufacturer. Yeah, but, I uh, kind of remember the name, but I yeah, but I, I do remember being at IPEX and yeah. going to that uh press launch of the right. Indigo. And if I remember right, they couldn't get the press to work. I think it wasn't necessarily a press, but they had some kind of a, like finishing attachment on it that didn't work. So okay. it, yeah. it didn't quite go as smoothly, but you know, um, certainly uh, Indigo and, yeah. you know, at that time it was run by, owned by Benny Landa and then, right. you know, HP and then Benny started Atlanta, but it's you know come a long way. But um, you know, one of the things that always was fascinating to me as we we saw the the advent of digital printing, right? But it seemed to really catch hold a lot slower than many of the industry pundits said it would. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm a big admirer of Charlie Pesco, and you know, he had the mm -hmm. on demand show and and Barb Pello and um you know, but I don't think that their prognostications of how fast digital printing was going to get uh, take gather steam in the industry didn't really yeah. happen on the same timeline that I think right. were telling us it was going to happen. Uh, because for for a while it was a technology in search of uh, of applications, and uh, you know the initial demonstrations were were wonderful. You know, you could see your name traced in the foam on a. Uh, a cup of um, espresso and, and uh, you know, things like that. And uh, personalization, while it's, uh, you know, turned out to be uh, hugely important for applications like, uh, you know, direct mail and documentation, uh, doesn't seem to have been as compelling as a marketing device as we might have expected. Now, I, I, I can anticipate getting a lot of pushback for for that statement i'm not saying it wasn't relevant but uh that always puzzled me a little bit i mean if it could put my name and my picture and my variable information uh anywhere on the page it wanted to go why wasn't i seeing more of it in, right uh, you know the direct mail that i was seeing and there was a lot of uh, uh excitement at one time about uh trans promotional documents or trans promo you know your yeah. uh, credit card statement would have the word. It was, and and, and again, uh, it. it uh, not saying that it never happened, but uh, you know, just not on the uh, 
the scale we initially expected. And I guess that's just a, another reminder to, uh, you know, no matter what the technological breakthrough is, just uh, temper expectations. And, right. uh, you know, I think that also applies to the uh, adoption of production inkjet. I mean, as successful as that's been, uh, I think we can, you know, both remember from the first uh, few inkjet summits and other events that, uh, you know, there are projections about the number of uh, offset pages that are going to, going to be overtaken by inkjet pages that, uh, well, may happen, but hasn't quite happened yet. Right. But it is definitely uh, moving along. Oh, it is. Yeah, no doubt about that. But, you know, getting back to the digital printing, I think one of the one of the uh, things that slowed the progress, too, though, was that the yeah. customers didn't have the databases and didn't have the data yeah. drive that personalization of the yeah. capabilities of the presses. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's still an issue, um, mm -hmm. but um, obviously um, it's gotten a lot more sophisticated and, and mm -hmm. the presses, what they're capable of doing has become a lot more sophisticated. Um, but you know, one, one other area that we yeah. saw, and I guess we're getting a little out of chronological order here, but yeah, we saw the advent of computer to plate. Um, yeah. Don't want to forget about the convention. You know, and that was, yeah. that was a huge yeah. movement in the industry. Right. And you know, I think, um, yeah. you know, printing impressions, I think, believe it or not, actually played a small role in, yeah. in that, in that we inducted a gentleman named Jonathan Ward into our printing industry, right. printing impressions, printing industry hall of fame one year. Yeah. And he worked for our Donnelly. And at that time, when we did our hall of fame banquet, we had suppliers present the award. Well, Amos Michelson, no relation to me, who was yeah. the CEO of Creo was mm. trying to get to Jonathan Ward to sign off on acquiring a bunch of, ctp devices yeah and that that banquet where they sat together at the same table where amis presented the award um and that ended up our donley committing to s several ctp devices which um you know our donley was at that era was kind of the technology leader and then you know once our donley committed several other firms sort of uh followed soon right. um so i do think well a small role in in the development of ctp well talk about a disruptive uh, technology think about uh think about what the adoption and the adoption was pretty quick of uh ctp did to the uh, the major film producers uh, you know kodak agfa right. uh others uh you know again it wasn't uh it didn't happen overnight, but uh, eventually there was no longer need for uh, for graphic arts film, or at least not the need uh, you know, that that had existed uh, previously. I'll never forget the first time I saw a multi-unit offset press uh, load uh, plates into all printing units uh, simultaneously with a one press operator, uh, you know, basically there to just to check to make sure that it had happened correctly, you know, without all the manual setup that used to be the case. And I think it's uh, just important not to forget what uh, progress progress has been made by uh, offset lithography uh, in about the same time frame as we're talking about here. In 1985, uh, it was still, you know, the wet, messy, uh, unpredictable printing process that it had been, you know, probably for 50 or 60 years. Uh, 
but with uh, the advent of uh, you know digital uh, digital controls uh, and uh, when well, we, we've mentioned CTP, uh, the ability to uh, precisely set every function on that press, you know, from uh, ink fountains to suction to uh, uh, air pressure as the sheets uh, travel through the presses. Uh, uh, the appearance of uh, onboard inspection systems, uh, it turned uh, offset into a very, very stable process that started to get more economical in uh, smaller quantities because the process uh, was becoming more automated and therefore requiring less make ready. And, uh, you know, those economics uh, are very important. So I'd like to give a shout out to Offset. We could say the same about uh, a flexography as well, which, uh, uh, you know, began life as, uh, well, crude would be the wrong word to use, but, uh, you know, no one uh, seeking top print quality would, uh, you know, want to do anything on a flexo press. That isn't true today. That also has become, uh, you know, very, very predictable, stable, and uh, high-quality method of, uh, you know, getting printing done. So just a shout-out on the conventional side here while right. we're, you know, we're talking about digital. And, you know, we've seen, uh, and this isn't necessarily a new phenomenon, but with the automated offset presses like you're talking about, you know, a printer will get rid of three or four older presses and yeah. one automated press and mm -hmm. that's more productive than than all that older equipment combined um you know another trend we saw certainly uh it's throughout our careers really is the whole uh industry consolidation trend yeah. um mm -hmm. you know sometimes it's hard to keep track of who's on first uh there's been yeah. so many acquisitions um consolidations uh you know it seemed like there was a period where you know we had these very active consolidators out there yeah. uh, you know certainly joe davis consolidated graphics right Ao, some of the so, other yeah. ones yeah. several consolidators that failed um mm -hmm. frankly um but and we do have some today still uh yeah but i don't think of the scale that we saw, you know, during certain periods of time, you know, what do you think about the impact that has on, on the industry? And, you know, if that trend will likely continue, you know, what impact it will have going forward? Well, uh, you know, there, there's, there's good news and there's, uh, and there's bad news. We'll start with the, uh, you know, the bad news, you know, loss of, uh, establishments, uh, you know, leads to loss of employment. Uh, you know, those are, uh, you know, those are never good things. Uh, it may leave uh, some regions of the country deprived of printing services that uh, they didn't used to have. On the positive side, uh, it addresses what's been a chronic problem in the business since, uh, you know, you and I began covering it, and that's overcapacity. Uh, you know, too many cylinders chasing, uh, you know, too right. little work, or maybe now we would say, uh, you know, too many nozzles chasing, uh, you know, chasing too little work. So uh, uh, cons if consolidation addresses overcapacity, that's healthy for the industry. If uh, consolidation makes it uh, easier for the uh, acquirer uh, to serve not only uh, his existing base of customers, but the, the base of customers uh, he or she has acquired, than uh, the customer base benefits. So uh, 
it's uh, you know there, there's there's pain and there's uh, there there's comfort to it, but uh, I mean at the very least you would have to say that it's it's a it's a natural uh, it's a natural process in any right. mature industry. Uh, you know you mentioned uh, Senbeo a moment ago. We both know Paul Riley very well. Uh, Paul, of course, was uh, uh, CEO of uh, Senbeo during uh, you know its high water mark as a consolidator, and he points out today that. Uh, uh, Buying groups among printing companies make, uh, you know, consolidation on that scale uh, less necessary. So perhaps uh, the trend to consolidation has uh, run its course, although printing companies are still buying other printing companies and selling themselves to other printing companies. So uh, uh, this isn't something we're going to see the, uh, you know, the uh, the end of. Right. Well, you know, one thing, though, that's been said from my standpoint is there are so many midsize successful yeah, mm-hmm. printing companies that were driven by these incredible entrepreneurial, yeah, uh, in some cases family businesses, but yeah, um, you know, private individuals that yeah, you know, so many of those companies have gone away, and I mean, mm-hmm. you know, these were such dynamic people that yeah. that drove so many of these companies, and and now you know the trend that we've been seeing is, um companies being acquired by private equity. And, you know, from my standpoint, you know, I think it's uh, a positive that it gives the selling uh, ownerships an exit strategy because, you know, as we both know, a lot of times, you know, the children don't want to take over the business, you know, and they're they're aging out of the industry and they're looking to to exit and, you know, private equity is willing to pay good multiples. But, I'm nervous about the long-term ramifications. Uh, yeah, I think I, I think I see where you're going. Yeah, where that's going to impact us because, you know, the model of private equity typically has been, you know, you yep. buy a company, mm-hmm. you maybe build it up, make it more profitable, and then right. you, you flip it. So they're not really long-term players like you know what we've traditionally seen in the industry. Um, you know, I have seen that private equity companies are willing to invest in new technologies and they're, they're addressing the automation issues, uh, the labor shortages. Um, but if you're not a long-term player, I, I just don't know what kind of impact that's going to have on our industry. The, uh, I think the, the, the PE phenomenon is, is not, uh, old enough or hasn't, uh, we just haven't had enough experience of it to, uh, know what will happen uh, longer term. At some point, as you say, uh, the model will require that these uh, platforms that the PE investors uh, built up will have to be flipped. And I guess the first question is, uh, you know, well, whom to? Who right. is the, uh, you know, we know who the flipper is, who's the flippy? And, uh, you know, what is going to be the fate of the company in that uh, in that transition? Uh, it's been... Uh, positive in that, as you say, it does give uh, owners an exit strategy, although interestingly, uh, not necessarily an immediate one, because private equity investors tend to be industry outsiders who will need the selling principles to continue in a, in a substantial role for uh, a period of time, you know, just to make that transition a success. But uh, you're right, after that, uh, uh, after the original, uh, you know, personnel are no longer there, and after uh, the uh, private equity uh, has uh, made 
has added what I part of, and again, I, I don't know really enough of, enough about it to analyze it as closely as I would like to, but part, it's not part of the private equity model to uh, use a lot of leverage, okay, to uh, uh, increase, uh, you know, size and customer base. I mean, what happens to that, uh, you know, debt once the company gets flipped? I mean, who's, uh, what does that do uh, to the long-term prospect of the uh, of the company? And again, I really, I really don't know. I'm not sure that anybody does, but uh, it's uh, it's something we're going to have an answer to, uh, you know, probably within a few years. Right, right. Well, and you know, we talk about investment and investment yeah. in automation, and you know, that's yeah. certainly oh, yeah. um, to address what I think is a huge perplexing issue mm-hmm. in our industry is the lack of skilled labor and the lack of young yeah. people coming in the industry. Right. And, okay, you know, speak. I talk to printers about this all the time. Right, and I will, yeah. you know, put an asterisk by that and say that yeah. I think it's impacting all manufacturing industries. I don't think printing is unique. I do think we have somewhat of a disadvantage given the public misconception that printing Mm -hmm. is a dying industry and Mm -hmm. mass media that's kind of positioned us that way, you know, certainly doesn't help, but, you know, it's a problem with no easy answers. Well, uh, Mark, as, as I say, I, I continue to speak with, uh, you know, printers for various, uh, you know, things that I'm, that I'm working on. And uh, uh, sooner or later, uh, automation and uh, labor issues are going to creep into the conversation. There's just uh, there's just no way they can't. I think uh, printers do see a bright side in automation in that it lets you uh, operate with fewer people. And those people uh, don't necessarily have to have the skills of the people who were running the, uh, you know, running the old equipment and who are aging out of the industry, you know, retiring. So, uh, you know, that certainly is a one benefit and uh, automation may be even more significant for printing uh, in that if it's done correctly, it takes so much cost out of the manufacturing process. And, uh, one thing we, uh, I think we can agree, hasn't changed uh, over all of the years we're speaking about here is, uh, you know, margins in this industry, uh, you know, are, are still thin. You know, in certain categories right. of work, they can be better than in other categories. But uh, there's just not a lot of profit to be made on an average printing job, which means that uh, if you don't take cost out, you don't operate profitably. And I think that is the... Uh, chief benefit that uh, the printers, at least that I've been speaking with recently, perceive in automation. Okay, can we eliminate a redundant step? You know, can we not have, you know, two people looking at it and only pass it through to one? Can we? Not not only is it a a, uh, cost savings issue, but it's a need to market issue, which customers, everybody wants their job yesterday. Yeah. Um, so, you know, anything that, that printers can do to, to yeah. speed their workflows. Um, but, you know, I personally feel it's going to take, it's going to have to happen at the grassroots level to uh-huh. get people to join the industry. I know we've both reported on Mariano Rivera and some of the things that he's doing, which is wonderful yeah. in terms right. of uh, trying to, to bring underprivileged youth into our industry. Right. Yeah. Um, but 
I do feel that it's it's going to have to be at the local level levels where printers are just going to have to get involved, um, you know, with their local schools, you know, right. mentoring, wh right. whatever it takes to just try to, right. you know, one by one kind of attract people to our industry. Uh, Mark, I, I couldn't agree more. As it happens, uh, last year, uh, I, I wrote what amounted to a white paper for the Print and Graphic Communications Association. That's uh, uh, one of the former uh, PIA affiliates, and it was about that recruitment and retention. And I spoke to a lot of people, printers, uh, educators, consultants. And, uh, you know, by the time I was done with all of the conversations, that was coming through loud and clear. It has to happen at the grassroots. At, and you use a variety of uh, solutions. Uh, you work with your local uh, vocational programs, BOCES, uh, if there are uh, uh, apprenticeships. And every state uh, in the union uh, has an apprenticeship program, uh, probably in need of updating for printing. But, uh, you know, these can be uh, explored and applied. Uh, they're doing that in the state of Pennsylvania pretty successfully and in other places as well. Uh, it's always been my, you know, my personal belief. And again, uh, all, uh, you know, do uh, praise to uh, the Mariano Rivera Foundation for what it's, uh, you know, for what it's doing to bring people into the industry. I'm going to uh, give a shout out to a group I'm working with here in the New York metro area, the uh, Graphic Communications Scholarship uh, Foundation, uh, you know, the Print and Graphic Communications uh, Scholarship Foundation on, on a national scale. Uh, I, I think uh, we, we've probably learned over time that a, that a national or an industry-wide push on this uh, uh, is probably going to have only uh, limited efficacy. Well, and I and I know that Printing United Alliance, you know, it, it gives out scholarships and uh, it also has uh, launched this iLearning Plus, uh, which is yeah, a great collection uh, of uh, online, yeah, uh, yeah, training program, and there mm -hmm. is like a introduction to the graphic arts, yeah. and they, they keep adding more programming. Um, so that, you know there are tools yeah. out there to um, help train people, but we still got to get them in the door. Um, you know, get them hired. I am seeing more printers do a lot more cross yeah. training um, right. of the employees they do have. Yeah. You know, to make them more valuable within their operation. Right. So, um, Mark, you, you you probably uh, you probably know that uh, I, uh, I I was a university lecturer in uh, in graphic communications for actually a good uh, good number of years uh, at various places, and uh, I uh, was fortunate to have the opportunity to bring uh, class groups to uh, printing plants here in the New York New Jersey metro area, and uh, I will never forget. Uh, watching, you know, the lights come on uh, in these, uh, you know, faces and minds when they uh, enter a printing plant and uh, they see what happens there. You know, they see the sequence of events, they begin to grasp the process. And if uh, there were a way we could encourage uh, more printers just to bring more young folks into their into their plants. And I know that's not easy to do uh, in a busy printing plant when there's a uh, you know, limited time to spare, sometimes no time to spare. But uh, if that were done on a larger scale, I think that would go, you know, no small way to uh, improving our, our, our recruitment. I mean, it's a wonderful industry. It's a wonderful technology. But, uh, you know, it's, it's under a shroud. I mean, it, it always has been. It's just something that the, uh, you know, the general public uh, is 
not going to have uh, any uh, detailed knowledge of. So, uh, you know, we need to be uh, a little bit more demonstrative, uh, you know, a little bit more uh, forthcoming in our in our outreach. And I know, right. that, you know, you and I would be happy to facilitate that in any way we can. But uh, that's certainly, uh, you know, that's certainly one key to it. To, you know, just bring some kids into your plant and, uh, you know, good things will start to happen. Right. I guess it's just kind of a, a closing question and I'll give you kind of my comments, but yeah. uh, I'd be interested to get your perspective is, is just, you know, we've been in this industry both, you know, over four decades. Um, what we like most about it and what's attracted us most to it. And I think you would agree with me that um, what I've, been most enthralled with is really just the genuine genuineness of people oh, gosh, yeah. mm -hmm. um you know there's not uh people i've found to be very down to earth yeah printers to be very open and sharing mm -hmm. information and oftentimes even with their competitors because i do yeah. think is yeah is andy paparozzi's uh phrase yeah. you know, uh sinking ship or uh, a rising tide rising tide lifts all yeah. boats. Um, so I think it's just been a wonderful industry in terms of just the the type of people that, that have been in it and still mm -hmm. are in it. Um, you don't find that in a lot of other industries. Oh, Mark, that's, that's so true. I, I've uh, had exposure to other industries and I, I think I said earlier, uh, I, I never met a stuffed shirt in the printing business as I had in, uh, you know, in, in other industries. I mean, printers are, wonderful people. They're the salt, they're the salt of the earth. And, uh, you know, I say that, you know, without, without any hesitation or, or embarrassment. I mean, it just uh, amazes me and humbles me even to this day, how willing they are to, to speak with me. I, I continue to uh, interview printers uh, as I did for, you know, for so many years. And uh, in eight or nine cases out of 10, they had no idea who I was. Okay. They, right. they might, uh, you know, they might've been familiar with the, uh, um, publication or the media outlet I was working for, but, uh, you know, they didn't know Pat Henry from the man in the moon, but, uh, were, you know, were willing to open up or willing to answer my questions, you know, certainly not disclose everything, but, uh, in most cases, uh, you know, more than I, I really had a right to expect. And, uh, uh, that, that generosity and in, in sharing, uh, knowledge and, uh, you know, that lack of, pretension and you know that willingness to help uh it's it's just it's just been a joy it's just been right. a joy yeah well, i i see that you know when i go to the inkjet summit and i'll see two, yeah. two direct competitors in a yep. corner you know comparing notes and sharing information mm -hmm. on what's worked yeah. for them and you know what what uh, uh investments they would recommend to each other and you know it's yeah. wonderful to see because um yeah. you know i do think we are all in this together and, right. Um, to me, that's just been such a remarkable and yeah. enduring part of being a part of the graphic arts industry. Mark, I have a closing question for you, if I may. Uh, when, when you and I first joined this industry, certainly when you first joined PI, there were many, many more publications in the graphic arts space than we have today. I mean, most of them have just ceased publication. What, what do you think is the secret of printing impressions is longevity when so many others have just disappeared? Well, that's that's a, that's a, a good question. And there certainly were some wonderful publications. I mean, for years mm. we battled it out with American Printer, Graphic Arts Monthly. Yeah. Um, 
and then there was high volume printing and certainly then all the regional publications that you mentioned yeah. earlier. You know, I think one thing that was successful for printing impressions was that we tended to be very people oriented. As you recall, you know, we yeah. always put people on the covers. We profiled successful companies. We talked about, you know, when we interviewed them, we talked about what made them successful. Um, and, you know, what I found is the secret sauce was very different in a lot mm. of cases for different companies. And, you know, there wasn't yeah. necessarily one recipe that worked uh, for everyone. Um, but I think that, you know, when it's all said and done, an industry is made up of people. And I think we had a very strong focus on people. Uh, we tended to also um, be directed a little bit more toward the midsize and larger printing companies, yeah. not so much the, um, you know, the quick print shops and the franchise mm -hmm. shops. And there were publications that catered to that market. Mm -hmm. um, but also, frankly, you know, we were owned by the Borowski family and yep. um, the founder of Borowski was a printer himself. And um, we acquired several uh, publications, you know, packaging, implant, um, you know, different publications. And and as a company, we were just more committed to the industry. Yeah, you know, Graphic Arts Monthly and American yeah. Printer, they were owned when they were shut down, they were owned by these large multinational conglomerate publishing companies. Yeah. They didn't see a future in printing. Mm -hmm. Whereas our company really, that's what what the company was really all about. Yes, we did have we did have brands in some other fields, but really the core of the company mm -hmm. was the printing industry. So I think, you know, there was a, a higher level of commitment, which, you know, certainly helped. Um but, you know, I know some people ask me, have asked me like, oh, you must, you know, be glad those publications don't exist anymore. And frankly, yeah. it's it's a total opposite, you know. Yeah, it's kind of lonely. Um, I think they were all wonderful publications. Mm -hmm. You know, the press corps, we were a community. Uh, you know, we traveled together. Yeah. We uh, commiserated together. And um you know, I think it's a shame that there's not more more publications covering the industry. Really, it's we're down to two, and yeah. um, you know, it's it's. Uh, I don't see any new startups happening. Um, you know, obviously, to send out a printing publication with the cost of paper and printing and postage. Postage, yeah, God. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, our circulation numbers are. You know, we were close to a hundred thousand back when we were battling it out with. American Printer and Graphic Arts Monthly and advertisers were looking at BPA statements and uh, it was it was a numbers, a numbers <laughs> yeah. game. Yeah. But you know, I, I think it was those factors. I think our our focus on people, the commitment of our ownership, yeah. um, I think those were the two key drivers as to to why we're we'll still here today. And unfortunately, those brands don't exist anymore. But, you know, there were some wonderful editors, you know, Roger Nostroza, Bill Asler, sure. Jill Roth, Catherine. Yeah. And people I still look so up to. So many more that contributed yeah. to knowledge sharing in our industry. And, um, you know, it's sad to see them not part of it anymore. Well, uh, Mark, uh, it's pretty clear that, uh, you know, that that I commitment to the industry and identification with it uh, continues to drive printing impressions. So that's uh, that that's the correct answer. 
Yeah. Well, you know, we just celebrated our 65th anniversary, right. and, uh, yeah. our June issue. And, um, you know, it's a milestone. Not too many publications reach that. Mm. But, uh, you know, I think hopefully for many more years to come. But, you know, Pat, it's it's always a pleasure speaking to you. We've known each Likewise, other. Mark. It seems like forever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the camaraderie that, that has existed between us all these years. It's just uh, it's, it's just been wonderful. I want to thank Mark and Pat for taking us on a trip down memory lane. I will include links to some of the things they discussed, including the one to the Museum of Printing. And finally, I want to thank all of you, our listeners. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Impressions Exchange podcast.